Okay, by way of just a couple of announcements regarding this, uh, we only have two more classes after this one. Uh, next week will be on the sacraments. Uh, please continue to watch all, not just 24 episodes, but all of John Gerstner. Uh, have you been watching him? He's uh, the ones that are uh, on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yeah, he covers that. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a little. Uh, how would I put it? Direct. But he's good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He trained R.C. and you can see it. You can see why R.C. And R.C. was like that anyway. But uh, R.C. Sproul in class was a very intimidating professor. He would call on you to pray. And then critique your prayer. So, no. So one of my friends was ready. He called on him and he prayed the Lord's Prayer. And he said, that was a good prayer. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he would also walk up to you and if you answered a question with a heretical answer, he I guess he smoked. He did smoke. And he would pull out his lighter, pop it on, hold it right up to your face, and he said, what do Reformed people do to heretics? <laughs> we burn them. So he was... He was pretty engaging to have in class. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. All right, tonight, uh, tonight, oh yeah, two more classes, one on the sacraments and one on eschatology, which is not just going to give you a position, but talk about both, uh, I'd say, cosmic eschatology in terms of particular views people have, but also personal eschatology, which deals with death and dying and heaven and hell and life after death and all those issues. Uh, Mark Anderson may be teaching that for me. I'm not sure yet. He hadn't committed with blood, but he has said he'll probably do it because he taught a Sunday school class. And it was an excellent Sunday school class. But what I'm asking him to do is to take like five classes and compile them. And that's hard to do and feel like you're getting stuff done. All right, so let's open in prayer. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We pray it would be profitable for the purpose it's happening, and that is to train and equip all of us to be better servants of your church. Uh, I pray for each one of these men who is... Uh, going through the process of determining where they are in relation to being um, equipped and ready and uh, able to be an officer, be it deacon or elder. I pray you would make that, your will clear for them at this time. pray also you'd give the session wisdom as we examine uh, each candidate and uh, go through that process. And so we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we're talking about church polity and church discipline. And part of your handout is just something for you to read on the types. Uh, really, it's about church revitalization, and I think it's helpful to look at that. That's more of a spiritual application of what you're hearing tonight. But we're going to talk about polity, which is church government. We are Presbyterian, okay? And that means something. By the way, what does the word Presbyterian mean? 
A presbyter is an either older person or an elder, uh, an officer in the church. It's presbyteros in the Greek. And so uh, that has says in that one word, it says a great deal about how our government functions. But I want to talk about something else tonight, sort of not in summary fashion, but just bring to your attention this blue book. Okay? This is called BOCO which is Book of Church Order. Okay, every pastor, teaching elder, officer in the church will have a copy of BOCO. Any member can have a copy if you want one. If you want to pay for one, we'll be glad to let you buy one. Uh, we can't give them to everybody. Not everybody would want one because it basically describes the government and discipline, and worship directory, and rules for general assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. I once had, uh, when I came back to here in 2004, I had a couple of guys in the church who were more Baptistic in their understanding of church government. Um, that is, they were not Presbyterian, nor were they hierarchical. They were more congregational in their understanding. And so they were irritated at the way things were being done and the way I was leading the church. And so they came to me, uh, they actually came to a session meeting and sat down and uh, talked about why, what they were upset about and why they were upset. And I just went over to the shelf and pulled this off. I said, take this home, read it, look at it. If you see me doing anything out of order with this, let me know. Your expectations of what I'm supposed to be doing are not Presbyterian. I am a Presbyterian. This is a Presbyterian church. This is how we do it. I can't be concerned with whether or not you agree with it or not. I have to be faithful to it because I took vows. You know, that's part of your ordination vows, is you vow to operate according to this. So that's all you're going to see in the Blue Book tonight. <laughs> but it's fascinating. 63 chapters and then some other stuff added on. And it gets amended all the time. Book of Church Order, will, uh, even in this past assembly, some of the phrasing and words uh, in the Book of Church Order were changed, but it takes it's a process, and it has to go through all kinds of committees, all kinds of votes, and it should be that way. It should be that. It shouldn't be anything we can just change in a minute's notice. So if you're going to be an officer in the church, you have to know how the church works, how it works. And um, so there's a book that I will also give you, I don't have it in here with me, called Sean Lucas is the Author on Being Presbyterian. If you are nominated and elected to be an elder, you will be awarded that book, which is not only uh, what Presbyterians believe, the history of Presbyterianism, but also a lot of what I'm giving you tonight came from that book. That's the source, uh, because I thought it was so extremely helpful. Last I heard of him, he was pastoring a church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I don't know if he's still there. He may have moved to Memphis from there. But a uh, good guy. like him a lot. One of the uh, great mysteries and challenges for those who are coming to a PCA church from what I call more Baptistic, you know, what are the three basic forms of church government out there? There's one called higher... Archical, 
and there's one called congregational. This is going to be on the test, so you better write it down. Test, yeah, and representative. What is a hierarchical? Can you give me an example of a hierarchical form of church government? Yeah, Roman Catholic Church. Why would we say that? Because they have a top dog, right? There's the Pope, and then there's what? Cardinals? Yeah, but they're, they're, it's more complicated than what I'm giving you. But it's a top-down form of government, right? Okay, so uh, I would say Episcopalian has remnants of a hierarchical approach. Even the Methodist Church has a hierarchical form of government. What about congregational? Name me a congregational church. That means what? All decisions are made by what? Oh, that was, that was the biggest dread of my life when I was a Baptist preacher, <laughs> having congregational meetings. And I just have to tell you, it's, it ends up being the lowest common denominator of everything you do. It, it never ascends beyond that. And I don't mean to be overly critical, but that was my experience. And there it is. But congregational means that every single decision, every penny spent in the church is voted on by the church every Wednesday night for the rest of your life. And so you gather and you have a prayer meeting. And, and let's say we were trying to buy a church van. Well, I assigned a couple of people to go do that. They did their work, came back, made a presentation. A guy who I have never seen sitting in the back stands up. And I said, sir, are you a member here? I've been a member for 47 years, he said. And I said, well, what? He said, I got a brother-in-law who can beat that price. It took us two years to buy a van. And we needed it today. It was so bureaucratic and it was just so, so, I don't want to ever go back to that. That's, that's, that's the kiss of death. And then what is the representative form of government? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we elect, uh, vote on both teaching elder, ruling elders, deacons, you elect your officers, and their responsibility is to represent you. It's, it's pretty much, with some exceptions, the pattern of our republic uh, in the country. And a lot of some Presbyterians worked on the original documents. They signed their name really big. But uh, they did. So that's what Presbyterianism is. Now, Churches coming, people coming into our church from other denominations sometimes uh, wonder why they don't get to vote more, why we don't have more congregational meetings. Um, and the reason is we have a different form of government than them. And so uh, when you join the PCA, it might seem a little strange if you've never been in this kind of uh, polity or church government. There is, however, a method to the mad madness. Yeah. Oh, okay, you're stretching. Yeah. I saw that hand, Billy Graham said. BCO, uh, 63 tra chapters have the rules of general assemblies. The rules seem odd to believers who believe that the spirit, the Bible, Bible, Robert's rules of order and good common sense is all that's necessary to govern Christ's church. 
Elders in the PCA take ordination vows to approve the form of discipline of the PCA in conformity with the general biblical principles of church polity. So you need to know what that is. You need to know what you're vowing to. Since all agree the same rules, or to the same rules, that will most of the time ensure discipline and order and will be fairly consistent. Uh, this press propensity toward consistency and having a system of rules has led to the claim that the Presbyterian Church of Amer in America's favorite verse is 1 Corinthians 11.14, which says what? Or 14.40, which says, let all things be done decently and in order. A lot of engineers are attracted to the PCA because we have even lawyers. By the way, who wrote the Book of Church Orders? Anybody know? Lawyers. I know. I sat in a class on polity at Reformed Theological Seminary, and there were three speakers, one theologian, two lawyers. And they explained, Southern lawyers, you got to watch out. you got to read it carefully. But no, it's a good system. It's a good system for unity and at least some kind of uniformity in the way we approach things. So discipline and order should be fairly consistent. But all joking aside, there are important biblical and confessional principles that support these practices. For example, the nature of church power or church authority and its source. To our Presbyterian forefathers, this was a vitally important issue separated Presbyterians from other groups such as independents, Congregationalists, Baptists, Lutherans, Anglicans, Methodists, and Roman Catholic. Part of our Presbyterian identity is shaped by how we regard church power. How do we regard church power? Who gets to say, who gets to make the rules? All of who has authority, who should be uh, submitted to in some regard. And these are very important issues which I want to talk about for the next few moments. What is church power? Where does it come from? Um, how is it to be exercised? Who is to exercise it? It can be helpful to understand our church and its courts and agencies in order to support more fully our branch of Christ's church. In Presbyterianism, when the word church is used, it means one of three things. It can mean the local church. It can mean the religious grouping of churches in a region, area, which would be Presbytery, and it can speak of the universal church. Uh, the elect is, is how I would refer to that. Uh, Presbyterianism, and this is a huge word when you come to, I'm running out of board space here already. One word that you hear often thrown around when you're talking about Presbyterian church government is we are connectional. Now this was a radically different concept for me because I grew up and the first two churches I pastored were Baptist churches. Uh, we didn't know what connectional was. Every Baptist church is an autonomous, uh, separate body. 
Therefore, they answer to no one but who? Themselves. And so there's no hierarchy. There's no oversight. Each individual church, for example, I don't know if you read about the Southern Baptists. I did, just out of curiosity. Uh, basically had two churches with women pastors that tried to get back in the Southern Baptist Convention, and they voted them what? Out. One was uh, down in... Orange County, uh, purpose-driven guy, Rick Warren, he has women pastors. And the other was a church in, I think, Louisville, Kentucky, which that's well, Louisville and um, Southeastern Seminary, I think it's near Wake Forest, North Carolina, somewhere up in that part of the world, are where historically there's been more liberal thinking and teaching, although... To his credit, Al Mohler uh, and those who support him actually took a liberal seminary and turned it around into a quasi-reform conservative seminary. That's never happened in the history of the church, ever. It's the first time. Usually when they go left, they'll never go right. You know what? Historically speaking. Okay. So... Uh, the Baptist Church does believe, however, since I know a little bit on the inside, uh, they're, they're not just totally autonomous in practice and independent. They have associations. They have the cooperative program for missions. And they have evangelism and some education. But for the most part, they are not connectional. I'll explain as we go longer what connectionalism is so that by the time you leave, you'll know. Now, what is the nature of church power? The church can err, and I say err, not err. Why? R.C. Sproul. Because he used to just get all over us for saying err. To err is human. To forgive is divine. He would say err. So he said that to me, because I said the other way. And I looked at him and I said, you like baseball, don't you, Dr. Sproul? He said, yes. I said, you're a Pittsburgh Pirate fan. He said, yes, I am. I said, let's say my favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals, a guy comes to bat, hits a hot ground ball, it takes a weird hop, and it rolls through the legs of the shortstop. Was that an error or an error? <laughs> he looked at me. When he didn't want to answer, he'd turn his back on you. And he'd take his chalk and go back to the board and start writing something else. And then he'd turn around and give you a little grin which meant I, I saw that, I heard that, and I will get you in time. <laughs> so anyway, those are old jokes. Uh, now some claim that the church's authority is such that to hear the voice of the church on a particular topic is or issue is to hear the voice of Christ himself, and you cannot dissent. Which church do you think says that? Yes. The RCs. The Pope is what? He's the Vicar of Christ and he's infallible in matters related to church and theology. He's infallible. Although, they kind of dance with that term. They'll kind of go, well, yeah, he is, but no, he's not. But yeah, he is, but no, he's not. Depending on whether they agree with what he said. And... uh so that's true. 
Uh, also, uh, the Pope, the Magisterium, and others uh, constitute that view. The Church has no real authority, no legitimate power, uh, merely uh, a voluntary association. That would be more of the congregational view. In other words, they view themselves as a voluntary association that uh, by your own, quote, free will, you join it and you can leave it and you are not subject to its authority ever to discipline you. Like you will never see church discipline hardly ever practiced in a congregational church. Why? They don't have the authority to do it. In, a, in other words, if they want to tell you we want to deal with you on an issue of church discipline, you'll just move and go to the second Baptist church down the street, right? And they'll be happy to have you knowing that <laughs> there was trouble. So there's that kind of view of power. Uh, the voluntary association in which individual Christians governed by the uh, Christ spirit agree to participate in a body of believers for the purpose of mutual encouragement and edification. The church as an institution has no real power except what is agreed upon by the members themselves. Some receive no members, and view themselves as a service organization. I guess like the Lions Club or something like that, which I like the Lions Club. I had a blind brother and they provided him a dog. They bought him canes. I'm all for the Lions Club. But a church is not the Lions Club. Uh, it's something different. And so both of these are rather uh, sort of uh, any attempt at discipline and doctrine uh, and an individual can declare the church null and void, that is, congregational churches, leave the voluntary association, be received into another fellowship without any ramifications. Both views, Roman Catholic and the more Baptistic view, have a kernel of truth. The church does have an authority, an authority, a submissive authority, to declare what Christ has said. Uh, in his word, about doctrine and ordinances and discipline, and has authority to require obedience of its members to the extent uh, that they declare, declar that declaration of its members agrees with God's word. It's also true that we do, and even in our church membership, people voluntarily submit themselves to the government and oversight or discipline of the church they have a right to disagree with an appeal. The church declaration or decisions, uh, if uh, believers uh, in, in a church uh, believe that uh, the church has erred in its doctrine or discipline, both also create a great deal of error. To think about the nature of church authority, is to think clearly, or in order to think clearly about why the church has authority in the first place, is the sphere in which the authority operates and how the authority differs other than other God-ordained authority we know. By the very nature of the case, two characteristics necessary for the work of every society or organization, no matter what it is, is they both have to have Anybody know this ahead of time? Oh, it's on the back. 
They both have to have officers. And what else? Laws. That's necessary to have anything uh, regarding the nature of authority, is you have to have that uh, for any organization. Uh, if not, uh, the Indian proverb of all chiefs and no Indians applies. Uh, I hope that's not offensive. It wasn't at the time that he wrote this book, I guess, but it might be now. <laughs> so if it is, sorry, ahead of time. Um, uh, or you could say leaders and no followers, all leaders and no followers. Um, so, the laws provide reference points for the organization to accomplish its task. The uh, leaders do the work of organization of the church, provide warrant and authorization for the group. Officers and laws have to do with power. Can't be a ruler if we can't rule. No point in laws if they don't empower action. The church, in a way, is the same. Church society of those believers in Jesus Christ has authority and power to carry out its calling or its basic task. The sphere exercises its authority is defined by its message, the Great Commission. Spiritual issues are at core. Church missions is spiritual and its means are spiritual and so persuasion is used instead of coercion, and uh, preaching the word, not the power of the sword, and the church sphere of authority is spiritual because its missions and means are spiritual. And so the church exercises its spiritual power of authority in three ways. So if you want to talk about church power, which is kind of what we're talking about here, the church, the power the church has is spiritual, okay? Spiritual, not anything other than that. Now, there are three things that I want to get to you that are important in terms of remembering how the, what, how the church exercises spiritual power. Um, so, number one, doctrine. The church has the authority and power to say it believes certain things are true and that other things are not true. Based on the understanding of the word of God, the witness to the gospel, and its responsibility to deal with heresy. And so sound doctrine is part of church power. All right, the second thing that the church power is exercised in is in performance of the biblical elements of worship. The biblical elements of worship. Now, I have planted two churches in my life. One here, this one, and one in Louisiana. And you know what my goal was for the first year after we started? To have 52 worship services in a row. <laughs> Show up. I had a really good friend that planted a church in a military in Valdosta, Georgia, 
It was some military base. And he said the third Sunday after he started, he got up and it was his family and him and nobody else there. I mean, that's a little discouraging when you think. But everybody else was involved in some military training thing, and that was most of his people. And uh, he, he, just, he said it was the most devastating thing he'd ever done. But that sounds like a small goal, but it isn't a small goal. It's a big goal when you're planting a church. And so uh, to form the biblical elements of worship, to administer the sacraments, to determine the occasion of worship, the requirements of officers, members, and all of that are part of the church exercising its spiritual power. And then the third one is, can you guess? Discipline. Which we will talk about in a little bit. We're making good time right now. If you're on the outline, I'm on point two. The uh, source of power. Well, no, I'm not. I'm on spiritual power, point D, under one. So the church uh, involves itself in discipline, that is to call erring members back from patterns of sin using the biblical means of admonition, censure, um, excommunication, power to restore. Anytime anybody says church discipline, what does everybody think about? Excommunication. You do realize that is the absolute last thing. You're, you're there. What is the, well, I'm stepping ahead. But your goal in church discipline is restoration. Okay. And the only thing that can stop that is what's called contumacy, which I'll talk about in a moment. All right. So, not only uh, the church has the means, biblical means, for admonition, censor, excommunication, the power to restore to good standing, uh, the church power uh, is exclusively spirit, spiritual through the gospel, church power exclusively is not to be confused with the power of the state. The church is not to usurp the power of the state, nor is the state to usurp the power of the church. State has power delegated by God, Romans 13, 1-7. Jesus distinguished church power and state power, church authority, and different kinds of state authority. He says his kingdom or rule is not of this world. And so there's a commitment to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical, not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the common uh, commonwealth. And so, again, our power is spiritual. Now, were most of you here during COVID? Probably not. COVID was a nice dance to do, wasn't it? There, there are a lot of upset people. Even if you said this or said that, there's always somebody mad. Uh, we had one person leave the church because early on in COVID, nobody knew what was going on. You tend to get judged, I mean, after the fact, like we all know what we know now. We did not know that then. And so we were requesting that when people came to church, they wear a mask during the service. This person refused to wear a mask. 
I asked one of the deacons to go and ask the man to wear the white mask. Uh, he got up and left. Never came back. And eventually died of COVID. Which is terrible. Breaks my heart. I really liked the guy too. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't an enemy or anything. He just wasn't going to be told that he had to do that. But that was a tough dance to do when the governor is telling you the church has got to be what? Shut down. We did it for six Sundays. We actually ran a service with about 10 or 12 people here uh, on Facebook. And then the minute they gave us 50 could attend a service, we would have an early 8 o'clock service and then have a, I believe, 9.30 service or something like that, both on Facebook or maybe it was the regular 10.30 service. We had an 8 o'clock service and a 10.30 service which we allowed 50 people in per time, trying to submit to the order of the state. Now, some people say, said, you don't do anything the state tells you to do. Well, you need to read Romans 13 and tell me that, because it specifically says. By the way, when Paul writes Romans 13, he's writing to people in Rome. Was that a government in favor of the church? No. You got to remember that. It was hostile to the church. Nero used Christians as torches, as you know, and fed them to the lions in the Colosseum. Uh, so, there's a distinction there. Now, the church's commitment is not to involve itself in temporal affairs, is a recognition that the church, church's sphere of power, mission, and nature are spiritual in nature, and are different than the state. All right. Now, what's the source of church power? Neither itself as an institution, nor a combination of individuals within it that possess spiritual power, the Lord Jesus Christ grants power, purpose, and more, follows his... Um, based on the confession of faith in him and gather together as a new community that he is forming, baptizing, teaching the promises and, and uh, enjoying the continuing presence of Jesus. Jesus is the only head of the church. Um, that comes from the... Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. Within the province of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only teacher, lawgiver, and judge. If doctrine is taught, it is taught because he has revealed. Uh, if ordinances are administered, they are administered in his name because they are his. If government is established and exercised, it is through his appointment and authority. If saving grace is dispensed, it is dispensed through the virtue and power of his spirit. If a blessing is communicated, it is because he blesses. So obviously, the source of church power is none other than our Lord Jesus. He is the head of the church. Christ alone can bind our conscience and require submission because he is Lord, free from the doctrine and commandments of men, contrary uh to the word of God, Jesus as head of church is the source of all its authority and we alone, uh, or he alone, Jesus alone, can bind our conscience by his word. And so the ultimate authority in any church 
is and ought to be the source of all authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now let's talk quickly about the laws and limits of church power. The Word of God regulates the use of power granted by Christ. The will of God expressed in Holy Scripture. Uh, the, uh, the Bible, however, does not contain the Book of Church Order, the Confession of Faith, the Catechisms, a Directory of Worship. However, the Church is not left without direction. There are plenty, plenty of principles to teach us how to order church government, worship, and discipline. Uh, elements and circumstances are always important as well. Uh, you'll see that more in the confession clearly laid down. Uh, ordained leaders, uh, order of discipline, administration of wor wor uh, worship, some circumstances and context are open to the light of nature and sanctified common sense. Um, for example, there's no one in the Bible that commands you have to have air conditioning. I mean, this just gets down to those kind of practical issues. But what I'm trying to get you to see is that's kind of the substance of church polity in regard to uh, the laws and limits of church power. Um, see if I want to say any more about that before we move on. Yeah. There's a distinction made between the elements and circumstances of worship also come into play when we're thinking about church government. There are some biblically defined elements of church government that no church can exist without. Ordained leadership, order of discipline, administration of worship. But there are some circumstances to that government which are open to the light of nature and good old common sense. For example, an element of Presbyterian church government is that elders should gather regionally in presbyteries to conduct the work of Christ's church, but a circumstance is that the presbytery meets three times a year in alternating locations. In the matter of church discipline, an element is that discipline follows certain procedures of investigation and judgment outlined in texts like Matthew 18, but a circumstance is a set of role, rules in BCO 32.3 regarding the way a prosecutor in a discipline case is appointed. One is a matter of biblical revelation, the other is a matter of church procedure. Now, going further, those entrusted with church power are the officers of the church. Um, uh, they are the ones who are entrusted with church power. Even in the grant of power by Christ through his church, officers then are not free to do whatever they wish. Power to order the church's worship is exercised by officers severally or individually only because they have been commissioned by the church for the exercise of that authority. As a result, the authority to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments comes through a call issued by a local church and by powers granted by a presbytery. No one takes it upon himself to preach or administer the sacraments without proper authorization from a presbytery or without invitation from a session. Power of jurisdiction, the right and power to interpret and apply the law is exercised by the offers jointly as church courts. 
Thus, no elder has the right to bring judgment in a discipline case as an individual, only as a group of elders, whether in local church session or in a geographical presbytery. And so I, I say all of that to basically say, all of this, now Christian, right here, we had a discussion today. He would like to be ordained. He is not yet ordained. We hired him, the session did, as an assistant pastor, which involved no vote from you. Why? Because he's not ordained. Once he gets ordained at the presbytery, he'll have to go through another voting process. <laughs> to be here, the church will have to issue him a call, which changes the nature of his position here. He becomes a teaching elder here. And then he will be on the session as well with a right to vote. Why? Because he's ordained by the presbytery. That is the official stamp. Some people like to call it the union card. I don't like that too much. But it, 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 that's for your protection. Why, why does he have to do all that he has to do? Tell, tell him what all you got to do. You've got to go through licensure and ordination, and you have got to be questioned every way from Sunday. You've got to write stuff up. Uh, I know when I did it, I had to write an exegetical paper, and uh, uh, both on Old and New Testament in the original, deal with the interpretation and whatever. I don't know they do that anymore. But they do a lot of stuff. I had to take an English Bible test with 658 questions. Uh, now you say, well, at least they wanted to know I read the Bible from beginning to end at least once. But that's for your protection. Why are all these things in place to keep heretics out <laughs> and uh, knuckleheads and people who don't need to be in the ministry? Uh, and it's, it's a great service to you to be Presbyterian. I will say this, there's no other denomination I'm aware of, and I'm not aware of all of them, but I know them pretty well. There's no other denomination I know that better functions on paper than this denomination. The only thing wrong with it is people, which is why there's always trouble, right? But it's a good system for protecting you. If you have a problem, you got somewhere to go. you got someone to appeal to. You go to the session with a concern or a problem and you do not feel like you got an answer, then you can appeal, right? And then you can go to the presbytery and go to the presbytery and they uh, have a committee investigate your situation and the complaint you're making. Then uh, if you're not satisfied with that, you can take it to the General Assembly and you can put on a, a you can get you a protest board with a, that's what I, I always notice when I go to the General Assembly. Is there guys walking out in front of the assembly with uh, like uh, a protest, and on the board are uh, what they're protesting? They write it down, and you know, yeah, I mean, we don't push them around or anything. We just watch them go by. But but you have somewhere to go. You got a problem with me or something I teach? You can take it to the session. If you're not satisfied with that, in other words, you have recourse. There's really no good, compelling reason for anybody to ever leave a church for getting mad about something. You have recourse. You have somewhere to go. You have somebody to talk to. Uh, who oversees you? Who's responsible for you? But what a great system to protect you. Um, if you don't know you need protecting, you do. So do I. 
I'm so glad I have people I answer to. I, I am not a member of this church. Christian will be. Then he won't be once he's ordained. I'm a member of Presbytery, okay? That's my church, so to speak. And I am accountable to all those guys in Presbytery. And uh, by the way, uh, there's something called review and control in the PCA. And review and control is every court, whether it's the session, that's why it's called a session, because we sit in court. We are elders who sit in court and adjudicate. So you have the session, then you have the presbytery, then you have the committees of general assembly, uh, all structured for the purpose of dealing with issues. And so there's a review and control. Like Ed Kelly, tell them, you send in our minutes how often? Once a year. Yes, they do. They critique our minutes. I said, you don't know Ed Kelly. Because he doesn't miss nothing or anything. But uh, he's a great clerk, by the way. I, if he quits, I don't know what I'll do. I'll just have to point another one, I guess. But don't quit. Oh, he's better than that at other stuff, too. But the whole thing that I'm trying to communicate to you is is that somebody's always looking over the shoulder of somebody else. Why? To stop people from usurping authority and abusing authority. There's always checks and balances, which is supposed to be what our the American system of government is supposed to be, right? We have the what branches? Three branches of government, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember when I went to uh, pray for... Uh, what is it when you get your citizenship? What's that called? The ceremony? Yes. How'd you know that? I don't know either. I have to keep you around. Yeah, naturalization. Paul Anka was in the group. He was a Canadian getting American citizenship. And I remember I prayed at that, but I listened to some of the questions they asked them. And I thought, I'm not sure I could. <laughs> I would have gotten all of them. I mean, some of them, yeah. But it was a little tougher than I thought it was. But it was a great situation. But I'm just telling you the nature of church power and how the church operates and how it's supposed to run is clearly spelled out. And there's accountability in every direction you turn. Now, does that mean nothing bad ever happens? Absolutely not. Sometimes it does. Do people usurp authority? Yes, they do. People abuse authority? Yes, they do. But hopefully, either somebody behind or in front will catch up and deal with it. Now, are there politics in the PCA? No. Are there diff distinguished groups in the PCA? Yeah. There are different people that have different emphases. I actually applaud that in some ways. For example, there's an element that I would call very doctrinaire, uh, probably more would be happier if we were OPC than PCA, uh, very committed to doctrine, and they provide a good check and balance to some of the progressives. And then in the middle are just pretty much traditionalists. Uh, I have been a part of the progressive party. I have repented of it to a great degree. Uh, as you grow and mature in the faith and you get older, you go, some of that's just stupid. You know? What? Do they? That's uh, RPCNA? Yeah, we had a uh, 
run in with some of the other ones. All right. So I think I jumped ahead of myself. The only other thing I wanted to say about this was Christ has entrusted authority to his church as a whole so that each member might enjoy its benefits and submit to its authority. Uh, that authority is entrusted more particularly to officers' uh, administration on behalf of the local congregation. Uh, the nomination, call, and election of officers, both elders and deacons, and officers are not free to do as they wish. They are to order uh, worship, authority to preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, comes through a call issued by a local church by the powers granted by the presbytery. So you just can't come in here I had somebody one time that pulled me aside and said, I don't think we should be a Presbyterian church. He said, why don't you just leave the church into independency? I said, are you out of your mind? You know, because he didn't like Presbyterian government. I said, man, this is the best culture to try and do what uh, Christ has called us to do. So that's pretty much... Uh, let me look at your outline and see if there's anything I didn't touch on. Yeah, I might want to say something about, I've talked about re review and control, equality and authority, the connectional principle. Connectedness is through agencies. Let me name the 10 agencies that are now, they may have added one since this list. The Administrative Committee, which is the Office of the Denomination Stated Clerk. It's always a good place to call when you have a question you don't know. Those guys usually are well acquainted with issues that will come up in any church. Christian Education and Publication, also known as CENP. Covenant College, that's a denominational college. Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Covenant College is in Chattanooga, almost Georgia. Uh, they're right on the line. PCA Retirement and Benefits. Mission to North America, also known as MNA. Mission to the World, also known as MTW. PCA Foundation, that's more of a historical uh, archiving kind of uh, ministry. Ridge Haven Conference Center, which I hear is beautiful in North Carolina. I've never been there, but I've heard it's a great place. And Reformed University Ministry. The reason I'm excited about most of these, if not all of these, is they function as part of the church and are accountable. But RUM, Reform University Ministries, is one of the things I'm most excited about because we have started ministries in some of the major universities across the country. And the way RUM does its ministry on the campuses is not as a substitute church, but as a campus ministry and a lot of elders and deacons are coming out of those ministries, and a lot of new church planners are former RUM ministers. It's like a training thing. It's the smartest thing we ever did. And it's why we plant so many churches, and those guys are well-equipped to do it. If you've been on Vanderbilt's campus, or you've been on Stanford, or you've been on uh, Tulane, or some of these other places that are more academic, you're going to meet every kind of objection in Christian question 
about Christianity that you could possibly run into. And those guys are sharp. They are really good. I'm really impressed. And if I was young and had to do it all over again, I might have started that way and then become a church planter after that. It's a great ministry to have. So any questions on this? Good. Let's move on to church discipline. Uh, Ridge Haven. It's sort of a family uh, conference center where you can go and stay. And uh, they have all kinds of programs for stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a big moment uh, in, in my involvement. The first time I was here, I was highly involved in Presbytery. This time, not as much as then. But uh, but I was highly involved because I was planting a church and I had to see the missions committee at every meeting. And there was a lot going on. And I'm responsible to be there unless... And sometimes the distance is an issue. Sometimes it is. And sometimes you make a flight, they cancel it. So it's tough. But long and short of it is, they've only been here like three or four times in the 20 years I've been around here. And... Uh, I was so thrilled to host Presbytery. I know our session was, and uh, I was told that they will be back on a rotating basis. So that's good. I didn't have to drive anywhere but there, which is nice. Church discipline. Uh, you have that part of the outline? I'm going to go through this at a pretty good clip. We should be out of here in about 20 minutes. What is biblical church discipline? The power of church discipline is the authority of the church to instruct and guide the members of its community in their faith and life. And there are four stages of church discipline. You have the outline. It looks like this, if you want to take any notes. Four stages from general, informal, to formal. Now, everybody always jumps on this subject of church discipline and goes immediately to the formal end of it. And I think if a church is busy doing discipline as I'm going to describe it, you'll have fewer excommunications because you'll be up on what's going on. You know, sometimes you would say, am I really the last to know about this? And often as a pastor... You'd be surprised how often I don't know what you know. You know a lot more about stuff than I do that's going on because nobody wants to tell me unless they're at the point where they want to repent and whatever. But it, it's important to do. First, the four stages of discipline. Uh, first, self-discipline. That's informal. Stage one of church discipline is mentioned in Galatians 5.23. Egra uh, Kataya often translated self-control, is the new authority a believer receives from the Holy Spirit over his or her own self. It is the peace and harmony which occurs when there is integration between one's heart and one's conscience. Self-discipline often begins with gritting one's teeth and denying and repressing inner urges when you want to hit somebody. But spiritual self-discipline is only complete when the unruly heart is persuaded by the truth, melted toward God, responding in obedience and grateful joy. 
Self-discipline is the beginning and end of church discipline because it is the most basic element of all discipline. It is discipline in maturity. Discipline, discipline begins in a child's life as discipline by others. The process of child discipline that the Bible sets forth is one in which the control parents have over their children is gradually replaced by the control of the Spirit through the Word. The mature person obeys not for fear of punishment or hope of reward primarily, but out of gratitude to God who sent his Savior to rescue us and save us. Self-discipline is the beginning of church discipline. That is, 99.9% .9 of the discipline going on in the church is individuals using the Spirit's authority to mold their hearts more and more into the image and character of Christ. The other forms of discipline are merely backups to self-discipline by the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, self-discipline is the end of church discipline. That is, if others must go and confront and counsel with a Christian regarding his or her faith and life, the goal is not mere compliance nor good riddance, but a return to inner spiritual self-discipline, persuasion, and love. The goal of this commandment is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the first level or stage of self-discipline is just sanctification. And growing uh, in maturity, that's stage one. And that's really the largest part of it. Then there's what's called stage two, mentioned in Matthew 18.15 in a parallel passage in Luke 17.3. If your brother sins against you, go and convict him of his sin privately with just the two of you present. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The verse uses the case of someone sinning against you, but Galatians 6.1 tells us that we are to institute a one-on-one -on -one, uh, discipline also if the sin is not against us. If someone is caught in a sin, your spiritual should restore him gently. Restore him gently, I know, from the original means to set a broken bone. So you restore them gently. For the moment, we'll treat this step generally leaving out the issue of forgiveness and reconciliation if the person's sin is against you. What we learn from these two texts are, so we're talking about one-on-one -on -one informal discipline. What I've noticed about this is if someone has sinned against you, you go. If you see someone caught in sin, you go. What does that mean? You never sit and wait. You don't wait for them to make it right. That's not <laughs> biblical at all. It's our responsibility. And this is one of the things that being an elder in particular uh, is really challenging is to go and confront people in love with gentleness about sin. And we're not talking about, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. We're not talking, I mean, something that is probably visible, public, maybe even flagrant, uh, or something that's disrupting the peace and purity of the church, uh, let's say false doctrine, you go. But you always go, you don't wait. And so, this discipline is not optional, it's commanded. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, make the go required for you if you think 
you sinned against someone. Matthew 18 makes it required for you if you were sinned against. And Galatians 6 makes it required of you if you are put by God in a position to observe a habit pattern. So note, the word, go. <laughs> go. Don't let it fester. Don't let it lie. Don't hope that, uh, you know, time will pass and they will, you know, everything will be cool. No, we, that's the hard work of discipline. We're to go to the person caught in a sin. It means that there should be a habit pattern, something he or she is not making progress about. One on one discipline should never be hair trigger. Okay? Proverbs 10, love covers a multitude of sins. Initial approach must be private. You are not to talk about the person's sin broadly at all. Every effort is made to keep the discussion as narrow as the offense. This does not mean you can ever promise total and absolute confidentiality since if a person is unrepentant, discipline has to go to the next level. So you can't promise always confidentiality. But you go, and you go to deal with it uh, with the right attitude. Initial approach must be humble, even tentative. Luke 17.3 actually says, Approach your brother and sister uh, and rebuke him tentatively. So far as I can say, or as I can tell, uh, this is wrong, but I'm ready to be corrected by you if I'm misunderstanding it. That sort of tentative. But you have to deal with these things uh, in the church. I remember we had uh, a revival in the Baptist church, and of course, everybody gets really emotional and really jacked up, but also really emotional. They're laughing one minute, uh, praising God the next, and crying the next. So a little bit of emotion. And there was a staff member in my church. This is about a 2,000, 2,500-member church. A lot of people. And he came to me during one of the services, and I didn't know I mean, I'd never had an interaction with him. I knew who he was. He worked with, like, junior highs, which is the hardest job in the whole church. And I knew his name was Mark. And he walks up to me, like Mark here. He looks at me and he says, God has uh, convicted me that I need to come and tell you that I don't like your personality. I said, well, I don't think I can do much to change that. I don't even know you. I said, I'll be happy to forgive or confess sin, but I don't know if having my personality is a sin. Maybe it is. <laughs> Maybe the air I breathe just really bothers you. Or I have a tick or something you don't like. But I just thought that was the weirdest thing. And, uh, of course, the rest of the night I'm sitting there thinking, well, what did I do? What, what is it? And finally I talked to another staff member. He said, oh, he just doesn't like you because his wife thinks you're cute. I was single at the time. Okay, I was single. I was not married. And that was why he didn't like me. But he didn't tell me that. He told me he didn't like my personality. He did. All in being godly, you know. I hate when people lie when they're being godly. Because they're not. Okay. So, the purpose of the approach is always restoration or reconciliation. Restore him. Galatians 6, you have won your brother. Matthew 18, a simple apology is not all that is the goal. You want a relationship reestablished if possible. 
On the one hand, trust can only be rebuilt gradually, and neither party must insist that reconciliation means an immediate restoration of the same intimacy and trust that existed before. But on the other hand, uh, a expression of apology accompanied by a complete break in personal relations, a coldness and a distance, is never allowed by Scripture. So you just have to be sensitive. You have to use some sensitivity. And you have to realize that if somebody has deeply wounded you in the worst possible way, uh, you're not going to be ready to jump right back into an intimate relationship with somebody that's done that to you. It's going to take a little time, patience and healing. Mark 11.25 says, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him tentatively. If he repents, forgive him. Is there a contradiction here? No. Complete forgiveness and reconciliation occurs when you grant three things. No bringing up the offense to your offender. Or no bringing up the offense to you, the offender. No bringing up the offense to others. No bringing up of the offense to yourself. Mark 11 demands forgiveness in the narrow sense, regardless of the repentance of the person. You must grant. You cannot be bitter. You cannot rehearse the offense and play it over and over in the tapes of your head, filling your heart with coldness and ill will. You must pray for those that persecute you. But forgiveness is, in the fullest sense can only be granted if the person repents. Another way to put it is that you can... Ver Give an unrepentant person, but you cannot be reconciled nor completely forget with an unrepentant person. That's just truth. Level three, group discipline, also informal. Stage three is mentioned in Matthew 18, 16. But if he won't listen to you, take one or two others so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. We learn from the text that this is the third stage of, is triggered by the words, if he won't listen to you. There's always the trigger for the next stage. If a person won't listen to the Holy Spirit alone, you talk to him. If he won't listen to you, get a group, a small group to talk to him, and so on. This shows that you stay in a stage until you are sure the refusal to listen is genuine and solid. By the way, you, don't, you never race through discipline. It takes time. Often I've heard it said, uh, I think since I've been back to Spring Meadows, we have ex uh, excommunicated three people. Three people. And that's almost 19 years. Three people. But it took two to three years with each person. Why? Because you that's a serious thing. <laughs> And you want to be absolutely sure that you have carried through with all of the responsibilities of doing this. So I just wanted to say that sort of in reinforcement. So the purpose of two or three others to be counselors who have two sides to listen to later on, if there's no resolution, the two to three counselors may become witnesses if the matter has to be formally brought before the church. The counselors should be people who are wise and mature, who have their personal respect of one or more of the parties. The counselors are officers of the church. They must make it clear that they're acting as private brothers and sisters and in no capacity of representing the church. This is in level three. 
Stage three, before going, the counselors should not do much talking to the complaining party that recruited them to avoid gossip and talking uh, a brother down behind his back. Every effort should be made to tell the alleged offender that the counselors are not there to gang up on him or her and should mention that they have not allowed negative discussion to go on before the appointment. When the counselors meet with the two parties, a good procedure could be first to listen to the uh, complaining party who feels that the alleged offender is in the wrong. Be sure that the complainant has a real motive of concern for the alleged offender and is really going about things in a way that leads to restoration of fellowship. Look for the unsubstantiated accusation and harsh tone. Gently rebuke the complaining party if they are present. If the complaining party really does not have much evidence or substantiation, cite 1 Corinthians 13, love thinks no evil, that is, gives the benefit of the doubt. Urge the complaining party to drop the accusation. Urge both parties to forgive for indiscretions. If the complaining party is cogent and concerned and the evidence is there, listen to the alleged offender seeking to get him to respond to the complaining party as much as possible. We're getting close to the end, so this gets a little deep. To distinguish real offenses from mere misunderstandings, clear the misunderstandings so the substantial, substantial issues can be focused upon if there's really been an offense, seek to counsel with the alleged offender with how to rectify his or her behavior and attitude. Urge repentance, forgiveness, and whatever is required biblically if one or both parties will not accept the counselor's decision and the unreconciled relationship and the wrong behavior continues. The counselor should try for a time to bring the persons around when that fails they can tell it to the church. And then finally, number four is stage four, which is formal church discipline. Finally, official discipline occurs. It is formal. The church officially deals with the offending sister or brother. Jesus' statement, tell it to the church, gives us fewer specifics about this stage of discipline than any others. As a result, there are a lot of differences of opinions about what should be done here than any other area. For the purposes of uh, ministry, uh, I'll, I'll give you five things that are possible to do if it arrives at telling it to the church. Number one, if offense is public scandal, discipline can and must start at this level. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.1 is the quote. A person's offense must be told only to the church. Worship services in which there are plenty of non-Christians who are present are not the place for the discussion of offenses and discipline. To tell the church means either to tell the membership in a closed meeting or to tell the elders as representatives of the church. Frequently, the elders represent the whole people before God the assembly of Israel and the assembly of elders are the same. In many churches, therefore, elders operate as representatives of the church. They function in official counselors as outlined in the step above. 
The difference is that if the persons will not listen, the alternative is a removal from membership. It is clear that a person is never disciplined or removed from the church simply for sin. He or she is disciplined for contumacy. I've got to write this word. Anybody know what that word means? Refusing to repent. You might call it recalcitrant. Refusing to repent. That's the only reason you would ever excommunicate. Is refusal. It's not because of what the sin, the sin was. And sin can be horrible. And it can be flagrant. And it can be public. And it can be a scandal. And all of that should be taken consideration. The only reason someone is removed from the membership, even so, if they are removed, they are to be regarded as the proper object of continued discussions, reflections, and Bible study and prayer. Such persons are not banned, however, from worship services. The aim is still to see softening and repentance. Now, I've had discussions with two of the three people that were disciplined, uh, excommunicated. Two of them. I still talk to them because I want to keep the door open. They decide to return. One of them lives in China. Uh, I don't talk to that person much at all, to be honest. So that's what's going on. All right, finally, variables to consider. Speed. The speed which these stages are moved through depends on several variables. Member versus non-member. Longer time Christian versus newer Christian. Leader or person responsible in a responsible position versus someone with a few or no ministry responsibilities. Hardness and hostility versus teachableness and tenderness of conscience. Formal uh, uh would be censure, the forms of censure, removal from leadership, ministry position, sometimes that is demitting, a call, formal rebuke, suspension from the Lord's Supper, and then removal from membership. Uh, I'm not going to talk any more about what is an offense. I think we've covered that, but that's churches. All right, I got through when I wanted to. Are there any questions? You got one? Yeah, I know. About like watching paint dry. All right, or let us turn brown. That's not fun either. So, any questions? All I was trying to give you is just a quick overview of Presbyterian church government and also concepts behind discipline. And both are complicated. See that blue book? It's complicated. There's a lot of stuff in there. And a uh, person like me, Keeps that blue book close. You see me walk into a meeting with a blue book, something's up. Something's up. I don't have it memorized. Got a question? Oh, yeah. You can appeal stuff. Yes. You can. Some hire lawyers and try to sue you. For defamation. That's why when we do the membership question, 
we ask them the fifth question, which is, do you submit to the government and discipline of the church? And if they say yes in front of you, we can't be sued. They have submitted themselves to that government. Yeah. You've got to be careful. I think John MacArthur got sued for defamation on disciplining somebody. But I don't think he got in any trouble over it. Which is why pastors never sign anything to do with the church. <laughs> because if they get sued, yeah. You got a question? The what? No, it's, I already talked about what it was. It's either being sinned against or... Uh, sinning against someone, offending someone, hurting them, whatever. I mean, if you want me to tell you really quick, uh, when do you go when your brother sins against you? Undoubtedly not every and any sin. Don't be a, a go-goer. You know, be gentle. All right, that's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Uh, just appreciate the faithfulness of this group that's been here uh, regularly. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We pray that your goodness and mercy will pursue us every moment of our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming.